everyone, and welcome to Recovery Machine, Episode 9. I'm your co-host, Corey, and I'm here with uh, co-host, Nathan. Good morning, Nathan. Good morning. Hello, everybody. Happy to be back for Episode 9. Yes, for sure. So today, uh, what we're going to do here is continue on with our timeline, uh, assuming that you've got out of your IME and have been delivered the news that you are going to be sent to some sort of a treatment facility or be involved in some sort of a uh, treatment program. Um, so what we're going to do is is kind of continue on with uh, our journey through this process. And what else are we going to look at here today, Corey? Uh, so we're going to look at, um, going to spend a little bit of time on, on what the experience in a, in a, either inpatient or outpatient treatment is like from both, both perspectives, um, how to, how to approach it, what the sort of the healthiest, most productive way to approach going into that, uh, that treatment is. And, uh, and then we're going to spend some time today looking at different models of, of, uh, support groups that are out there, um, break them down a little bit for you. Cause that's, that's one aspect of the story that often gets handed back to the individual to find a support group after treatment. Um, there are treatment centers that incorporate their own models of support groups in them. Um, but you do have some choice and there's a lot out there. So we wanted to uh, break that down a little bit for everyone and give, just give you an idea of what, what you might be walking into and how to walk into it. And um, just might be some food for thought for people. Yeah, exactly. Kind of provide you with uh, what we, what we've experienced anyways, and what we've seen, throughout the the process that we've been involved in and and the different aspects of recovery that we have experience with so at this point you're probably looking at uh, being involved in some sort of a treatment program within i mean i think for me what was it it took one two three four almost four months to be sent to i went to homewood so that was in guelph ontario and uh, how long did it take for you to uh, get set up with a program there, Corey? Oh, three months. Okay. So yeah. I'm, I don't, it, it's hard to keep track of the variation of time between those two events just because I've seen a bunch of them and it's not normally something that we pay a huge, like we don't pay a, a ton of attention to it. We're kind of, it's a period where, for me, I felt, I mean, I was kind of still in shock with the the whole process. I, I had no idea that it was going to result in me being sent to a treatment facility. That was, you know, trying to wrap my head around how things were going one way in my life. And then all of a sudden I'm, uh, I'm going to rehab, you know, and it's, uh, it's an interesting kind of process as far as how that breaks down with your, your, ego, the way you feel about yourself, your self-confidence and how much you feel you have control of, uh, your whole life really. Cause it, yeah. it gives, it gives you a good shake. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of what, uh, we focus on mostly is trying to get people through that, that portion of time in a mindset or with an attitude that is going to help and give them the best chance of having a positive experience no matter where they're sent or you're yeah. sent. Yeah. Which can be challenging because 
I mean, well, we, we've got two different uh, situations here. Um, you, you were not sent to a facility. What, uh, you had a different option that I think you explained to everybody where you were allowed to, um, w- w- was it the same duration? Mine was about five weeks. This was a four week program that I did. Um, and it was outpatient. It would have been it, it nor, under normal circumstances. I would have been uh, commuting to it and going to it every day from like from eight to two or eight to three. Oh, I see. Inst- instead it was done online all over uh, zoom or whatever. And, and so I was able to do it from home. Okay. Just because yeah. of the current circumstances. Yeah, I see. Okay. Yeah. yeah that, uh, that makes a little more sense. So you still would have uh, been in there face to face with whatever uh, program they had there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So what do we think? What's the, I could tell you my mindset going into this was extreme reluctance. Um, I was very, very angry. I mean, uh, uh, one of my my buddies there uh, used to make fun of me while I was in. Uh, one time, I left my jacket in the uh, common room, and I was downstairs doing something. And I came back up, and he had my jacket on, and he was like walking around like this super angry guy and putting on a show, <laughs> which was <laughs> which was pretty hilarious. But that that is what I looked like, right? Like I was I was very very upset with having to. Um, having to kind of be put in this situation and I, I didn't want to be there. And I, and the facility itself, uh, I mean, it's, it's lacking in a lot of things. I, I think it used to be a little bit higher quality, but uh, when I went, you know, I wasn't expecting to be sharing a room with somebody. Uh, I thought that was, you know, it's just little things like that, right? So for me, yeah. my uh, you know having a sanctuary where I'm alone is important. And when I didn't have that, uh, you know, it's one more thing that's kind of that you're dealing with. On top of you know, I I might not have been in acute withdrawal, but I was still very much in post acute. I I felt like shit, you know. So you don't want to deal with those types of things. Um, did you? Did you maintain the same t- type of structure? Like, uh, what what kind of activities were you doing online? It was um, lots of group discussion, going over. You know, I, before I started the program that I was that I was put into, I was uh, delivered a enormous binder of material, and uh, every day we just would work through modules within the binder and. Um, that was broken into topics and chapters. And, you know, so we would have a day on, on boundaries. We would have a day on family, uh, family dynamics and family structure. We would have a day on assertiveness training, um, that sort of thing. And, uh, and then there was usually um, portions of the day that were devoted to, to written work uh, that we then submitted and, and shared. Uh, and then a portion of the day that was, that was discussion based around whatever the module that we had done was, um, but in, in connecting to what you had said, Nathan, for me, I, I know what you mean. I, my home is sort of my sanctuary and, um, being able to be in my own space was really beneficial and it being able to have some privacy in it. And I, I, I went into it with the mindset of, because I was at home, if I had have gone to a facility, I think I would have been angry 
as well. But because I was at home and, and I had been heard with that, with my own need to be, to be home and to be with my son, um, I had childcare set up for when I was looking or when I was in the program. Uh, my family was incredible about, about helping me with that. Um, but because I was able to have the privacy of my own home and, and, and reflect as I needed to and, and emote as I needed to uh, with some of the material, it, it, it kept it, it felt really safe. It felt a lot safer for me. And I think I got more out of it doing it that way than if I had of had to be sort of reluctantly taken across the country and, and done an inpatient program. Yeah. I, I, I think you would have felt the same way. You're right. Um, and many people who were there, especially the people who were from BC, like one of the first questions we had was, why are we here? Why did you ship us all the way across the country? And you know, the, the typical response is because this facility has a, a better program for medical professionals, or they'll tell you they don't, they don't think it's uh, as safe or confidential, or they want to avoid awkwardness with running into people that you, you may have, uh, you know, you may have had as a, a client or patient in your professional practice. And uh, both of which things are, are kind of nonsense as far as, I mean, Homewood had nothing more than a, uh, a pretty kind of slapped together. Well, actually their Caduceus program was the worst one I've ever seen in my life. It was, it was so bad that that's, that's what actually led me to, <laughs> to create obsidian. <laughs> it was so horrible. I had to do something about it. Um, but the, the other program was just another meeting with, you know, there was nurses and doctors and veterinarians and whatever. And we just got together at night. I mean, the same thing that you would do at any facility. Yeah. So, um, so that was weird. And for the people who did have kids, I was like, uh, you know, you could see it in their face. It was, it was tough for them, especially if it was somebody with, uh, like with young children and they didn't have a lot of support. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think what ended up happening there for me is even though my, there was a lot of reluctance, what I did find there was people who were in a similar situation. And that's where, for me, the knowledge was, was coming from Yeah, the, the actual program with, uh, you know, they've got addiction counselors there and, and addiction docs, and we were required to attend like at least one 12 step based meeting a day. And the whole thing was fairly 12 step orientated. So that part of it didn't resonate as much with me. But talking to people from all over the place who had faced all sorts of craziness gave me a lot of perspective. It, it gave me, a, it let me know that, A, this is happening. I, I had no idea before then how many healthcare professionals this happens to. I thought it was, you know, kind of an anomaly, uh, which is not the case. And then just uh, being there with, uh, with people from all walks of life, all socioeconomic stratas, they're all facing the same, it, it's the same monster really just in, in different forms. So yeah. that kind of, once I realized, you know, I can be mad the whole time and I can dig my heels in, but it's not going to do me any good. I mean, since I'm there, you might as well, 
you know, find ways to, to learn from the, from the experience and do your best to, you know, to, to pick up whatever kind of information is going to be useful to you uh, down the road. And that's what I did. And I got a, a really good friend out of it. And I met a, a bunch of people that, that taught me a whole bunch of, you know, very interesting things as far as uh, different perspectives are concerned. And, um, yeah, I had a, a couple of real interesting conversations with people who are, you know, not, they had uh, addiction related substance abuse problems, but they were also, you know, maybe in there for uh, a more serious eating disorder or uh, another mental health issue like uh, bipolar or schizophrenia. And um, yeah, so talking to some of those people is very, you know, to, to hear about their life leading up to the event and then you know, now they've been in this facility for almost a year, you know, you're trying to wrap your head around what this would be like, you know, and, um, it's pretty fascinating. So the people kept me going there and for that, I am thankful. So I guess if I could, if I could give anybody any advice about that, it's even though you feel you're going to, you're probably going to feel rough and maybe you don't want to be there. Maybe you're angry because you're away from your, your home. But just do your best to learn. You know, it's okay to be. It, it is upsetting. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's not a a, a part of life. It, it wasn't a part of my life that I was uh, thrilled about. But I did the best with what I could for at least the you know the last two or three weeks. Anyway, I think the first two weeks were probably a write off. I was just so angry. Yeah, you know, I for, I I really relate to what you said about about the people. For me, there was a lot of content that really was helpful and, uh, and days where I, where the self-discovery was valuable and I took a lot out of it, but every single day of, of the program that I was in, I, I went into it, um, trying to be as open as I could, open to, to the people and, um, that meant, that meant sharing my own story and taking in other people's stories. And even if it was a day that the content wasn't as, as redeeming the interactions that I had with the people and opening, opening up like that, uh, was always helpful. And, you know, looking at where I was at before, you know, inactive addiction, I was very closed off to, to everyone. And I saw myself as a very lone entity. And, and so for me, part of the process of, of opening up, meant hearing other people's stories and, and learning that I wasn't alone at all and, and connecting with people based on that. Um, and so that would be a, I think a big take home for me. And it's something that has sustained as a, you know, uh, well, uh, a year after I finished treatment, that connection to other people and the humanity and other people's stories who have been through the same thing is still helpful to me. Yeah. And just thinking about it, it's a interesting way to meet people. It's not like anything else in that you show up and everybody is really vulnerable. There's no escape. Even if you try to, you know, you can try to be quiet, you can try to hide, but they'll, they're coming at you anyway. And in these, in these group settings, it's, 
I mean, you can be dishonest. There's no question about that. But I think for most people, you can tell when somebody's deflecting or or telling the truth or trying to actually figure out what's going on, getting to the bottom of a problem. When people do that, they tend to open up in a way that facilitates real human connections as opposed to, you know, maybe going to like a... Uh, like like a life coaching seminar or, or anything else that uh, would be an education based program, you don't you know you don't show up there and immediately start digging into you know very personal kind of issues with your life, right? Right, right. You know, for me, I think that if if I had have been uh, as connected as I became after addiction, if I had been that connected before uh before addiction took hold or or as it was starting up um that would have been a really uh, powerful tool in helping me to to heal and to work through it um i think it's such a missing piece for for healthcare workers specifically you know that we we go to work and get through our our shift and then go home and manage manage on our own and oftentimes we our day is so loaded with human interaction and stressful or negative human interaction or worse that we want to go to our safe place and close the door <laughs> and draw the curtains. And, um, and, and, and so, you know, the obvious question will, would be, well, you can talk to your loved ones. It's a really different experience to talk to people who aren't your loved ones, to talk to people who don't love you, who don't, even really necessarily know you, they get to know you as the group goes on or as the program go that you're in goes on, but to, to be able to bear, bear your soul a bit to, to strangers initially and, and be that vulnerable. It's, it's such a huge step in, in cleaning that wound that, uh, that we all have. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to have the experience where some people are very open to that kind of, uh, conversation and other people they can be dicks about it and i think it's good to run into those people as well because that's the reality of the world it is and and no matter how you know it it doesn't matter you're not going to always run into people who are empathetic to your cause even in those situations and i think it's important to to learn from those individuals as well for sure. I, you know, I remember, um, in the outpatient program that I was in that, you know, it was, there were maybe a couple of people who didn't really crack until the last two days of the, of the four week program. Cause the, you know, there were a couple of topics that the facilitator was really trying to sort of hammer home and, and chip away at. And it was, that was, it was the heavy, the heavy stuff. And, and, uh, and it was like the just glimmers of, of cracking in the last couple of days. And it was helpful to see that, to see, to see other people go through that journey as well and to go through it differently and mm-hmm. to be open to how, to the fact that we all have to go through it in our own way as well. Yeah. yeah. And to see the people who, I mean, I talked to, I think it was the first week I was there, a guy came up to me and he's, uh, I don't know, maybe a little younger than me. And he's, he's, kind of sort of telling me how this place works and he's giving me advice and you know this is how you do it and blah 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 blah. 
And I got talked to him a little bit and I was like, man, you kind of, you know, a lot about this place. Like, uh, I mean, you know, is this your, you've been here a couple of times and he's like, oh, this is my ninth attempt. <laughs> and, and that wasn't the, you know, that I was like nine times I, and doing the math on the money and, you know, that's like nearly a quarter million dollars worth of uh, treatment. Right. And, yeah. and, um, I just thought to myself, like, you know, maybe after a couple times, you might want to look at a different, a different style or a different facility or, or a different way of doing things. You know, I just, but that wasn't, uh, there were people there who, you know, they're, they'd relapsed a couple of years after they'd been, you know, they'd been there and a couple of years later, they're back or, you know, many uh, return customers for that place. And I, I thought that was kind of a, it's not a good sign, you know, and of course, looking into, if you look at treatment facilities, statistically, they're not, they're not successful. I mean, they're, I, I, I don't know what the stats are like with the, the Canadian facilities, but I've seen stats that, uh, that show that the ones in the States are a little better or sometimes the same as spontaneous recovery. So it's like, I guess we, you know, if you're, if you want to be proactive and learn and you're motivated to do something about what's, whatever your addictive problem is, then it can help for sure. But without that motivation, like these people who are, you know, like uh, that individual I was, I was speaking about have been there nine times. His family just kept sending him, you know, mm -hmm. and he kept, he would, sometimes he would complete the program. This time he, uh, he had a freak out in one of the group sessions there and, and threatened to punch out the, um, uh, it, whatever the facilitator of the group. So he got kicked out and I don't know how many, I don't know if anybody got kicked out at your facility, but I, I think we, we lost maybe must've been 10%, I guess, of the total. Wow. Like, you know, every, and that, and I was told that that's quite normal, you know, is either, um, lots of it was, um, like, uh, relationships, having relationships while they're there, um, or using on, on site or, uh, they were the one guy got kicked out for, uh, being in a restaurant, he was spotted in a restaurant that served alcohol. You know, I don't know how that's even possible. I guess somebody must have ratted him out or something. I don't mm -hmm. know. But yeah, just a quite a shocking number of people who got to, especially like the last two or three days before being kicked out. I thought, man, <laughs> how brutal would that be? It would. It would. And, you know, I think that there was something to that, that in, in the outpatient model, um, you, you have that, you have that freedom. And I think it almost created an, an accountability there that all of us that were in it were professionals who had, who, who received the opportunity to not have to go into an inpatient facility. So there was quite a bit of gratitude for that from the, from the collective group. And so, and plus then you, it was, um, you know, five or six hours of the day. And then you as long as you completed your, your assignments and brought your assignments for the next day's session, you were, you were free to do whatever you needed to do with your day. Um, so there was that, I think that might've created some accountability. So there was no attrition or, 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 um, people kicked out of my group at all. 
Oh, that's good. Yeah. Were you guys encouraged to go out and attend different support meetings throughout the program? We, we had to, we, um, it was a requirement to, and I, I had already connected. I had, by that point, I had been going to my own home group for two and a half months. Um, but so we were required to connect and to find a home group while we were in the program. And so I went and said, well, ah, I've already done that. I'm already, I'm already connected. I'm going to a meeting three times a week. And I was encouraged and, and told to just try other groups to keep my home group. That's great. Cause it was a model that, that they endorsed. Uh, but they said just for the experience, go and attend some other meetings of, of different models, which I did, which I, I got a lot out of as it was, it reinforced for me that, that the model that I was already in was working for me and, and was a fit. Uh, but it was a cool experience to just kind of have that freedom to go and, and attend other meetings and see what I liked. Yeah, that would have been uh, beneficial. I think in my case, we were very much steeped in the 12 step model where I was at there, even the meetings when we were, when they finally let us, I think in the last two weeks, you're allowed to leave the, the grounds, the property, and then you, we could go, you know, it's fairly close to the town center or whatever. So you could walk down there and there'd be different meetings and stuff going on throughout the week, but, uh, they were all 12 step. So we didn't get to experience, like you, you said, you're having success with one and I think the one you're talking about is a smart recovery model, correct? Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't even know about smart recovery meetings until I got out of treatment and then started looking around and it was my addiction doc who kind of made me aware of other options. So uh, maybe we could discuss what those options are. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the first one, cause we've been already been touching on a little bit was, is, is 12 step. Um, you have more experience with that than I do, but I have attended 12 step meetings, um, a handful of them, um, and have done some, done some reading and stuff too. Um, so what do you, what do you see Nathan as the, the pros and cons of that? Okay. Yeah, we can, uh, we can go through them and, uh, and kind of discuss from a, and keep in mind, this is a completely subjective perspective. Yes. Um, you want to go through the steps here? Yeah, sure. I, I think, well, as far as my, my kind of take on it is if you find a model of any sort that works, then I don't care what the, what is involved as long as it's, you know, within the bounds of reality and legality, I think uh, that's fine Yeah. for me, for me, 12 steps uh, for a few different reasons, I guess, didn't, it, it just didn't make a lot of sense to me. And I had, uh, I had more success with the, uh, the smart recovery meetings as well. But the, the, I think the, the strength of all of these meetings lies in the getting together of people who have a similar problem and everybody in general is of equal footing as far as power is concerned. You don't, you know, when you've got a top down 
kind of relationship, I think it throws everything out of whack as far as who's willing to be honest and, and who's willing to really communicate. So if you're in a group of peers, this appears to be something that by itself is extremely beneficial. Yeah. So that's, you know, 12 steps checks that box. I think when I look at the, the program itself, I, I think back to, I mean, this is a program that was designed by, by two guys who kind of got together at a time where alcoholics or people who, are, who have trouble with uh, any kind of drinking tr- problems were basically write-offs. There's that, that certain type of drinker that, you know, once they, and I think we all have, have witnessed at least one person who's, who's got this problem. They just, they shouldn't, they're the type of people that shouldn't, uh, they, they really shouldn't be drinking at all. Uh, they, they have no ability, seemingly no ability to uh, moderate their drinking. And there's a, a substantial change in their personality when they drink. And I view this program very much as designed for that type of person. And from that viewpoint, I think it makes sense, especially if you take into account, I mean, this was, I think it was what, the 30s maybe when, when this was designed, somewhere around the 30s. Um, so I think, you know, religion, uh, Christianity still played, well, it was a, you know, that was a, maybe a a bigger kind of, we were more, uh, narrowly focused on that as a, a belief system. And I think that's why it it played heavily into how it was made up. But, Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, we can, we can go through the steps and just, uh, kind of, discuss, I suppose. So the first step, we admitted we're powerless over alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable. What are your thoughts on that one? Well, this is the kind of the big, the, to me, the, the key word in there uh, that is open for debate is powerlessness. And uh, we will get into the smart model after this, but, but this is kind of the whole question is, are we powerless? How much control do we have over our addictive behavior. Um, but the second half of that statement of admitting that our life has become unmanageable, I think that's a very relatable, relatable statement in that, you know, for me, am I able to manage this on my own? Do I have, do I have control to stop or are the, the driving forces that, that are pushing my addiction forward? Are they, are they the ones with the reins? You know, and what, and what, what were your, when you were in that situation and you, I mean, you, you mentioned being kind of out of control. Did you, what did you feel was necessary to regain control? Was that, was it only what happened as an option or was there another way out? Do you think, or how do you relate to that? Yeah. I, I think that, um, at that time. I did feel powerless and, and like it was unmanageable. Um, but admittedly I hadn't attempted anything other than my own (laughs) lack of willpower to try to get control. I have no experience with, um, trying to manage an addiction while using 
the 12 step program or any other program um, and still having access to my drug of choice, which I think is a really different, different bag. So for me, the, the full reset and all the things that came with it, uh, but the reset of taking myself out of that environment where I had access to opiates was, was essential um, because my own thinking, my own thought process about trying to stop wasn't working. I, I certainly agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I felt the same way. I realized that the first time I detoxed that it was, I had reached a point of fun. It wasn't that I couldn't manage that. Like I was actually managing the problem. Yeah. And as far as anybody knew, I mean, I was going to work. I was doing a good job. I was going home and my life, my personal life was not, it was not great, but I mean, it was, I was still moving in a, in, in somewhat of a normal direction, but I agree with the statement that it's, for me, it was, it was, I could say that I was powerless to control my consumption of that, of that drug in that environment. So I removed myself from the environment and was able to stop, you know, that, that stopped the problem for a little while. But then as we know, I put myself right back in there and, you know, it happened again. So I guess you could say in my case, I was powerless to, to control my consumption of that, that drug under those circumstances and in that environment. Yeah, I think that's that's accurate. So, and this also, when you look at this, you know, from our our point of view, it's uh, okay. Well, we have the option of removing ourselves, so we can take, you know, we could take a break from that environment. But somebody who's got an alcohol problem, alcohol is in your face all the time, everywhere, everywhere. So this is a different monster. You know, right there, you're looking at a different kind of problem. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, I have big respect for people who are able to somehow find their way through that if they've got that kind of a drinking problem. Yeah. Because I, I can't imagine how difficult that would be. I mean, there's no, you know, what do you do, right? <laughs> go yeah. go live in the Arctic. I mean, there's, uh, if you're anywhere on earth, pretty much you, you've got, you've got access to your drug of choice. So. Yeah, you know the the um, the other thought I had was that the, the powerlessness is accurate during that addictive cycle of behavior, but it it was really helpful for me to learn immediately after that I did have some power and some control over the situation. Just for for me, that was beneficial. It's a great point, and it's one thing that I don't like about the statement. If you take somebody's, if you tell somebody, especially early in recovery, that they are powerless over their condition or disease or what, you know, whatever you want to call it, I don't see how that's helpful. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure the individual is aware of the magnitude of the problem or they wouldn't be trying to get help. Right. You know, um, yeah, I just, I, th I think even to hear those words, and I can remember being told that that, that was the case, it, 
it automatically puts you in a victim stance and it it, it kind of makes you feel like well what why try then you know like what's the what's the point of you even uh, attempting this yeah no for sure for sure tell us uh tell us step two nathan step two came to believe in a power greater came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity um so yeah a couple couple issues with that wording i guess restore us to sanity i don't look at it as a problem of insanity at all i look at it as quite a logical adaption to a difficult problem that is extremely effective in the short term but poorly effective in the long term <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, and i again i mean this might be you know the the understanding of mental health when this was written was a lot different right for sure um and then of course you're you know the the power greater than yourself i think that's that's a pretty easy thing to understand as far as you know that doesn't you can still look at it from a secular view in that that could be a group of people it could be one person it could be a rock it could be a tree it, it doesn't really matter as long as you're as long as you believe that there's something out there that can help you and i think that's kind mm -hmm. of what the statement is generally getting at right yeah and that and that statement has since opened up a lot in the last uh probably in more recent years that to accept other other faiths and other belief systems and it's it's not as narrow as it probably was when 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 this was invented for sure exactly so Already, you can see the difference that it would make between somebody who was, say, an atheist and somebody who's got a, a, a real strong base in whatever religion. Let's use Christianity as an example. You had a lot of faith in that in that belief system. Then I think it would be much easier to, you know, kind of just throw your hands in the air and say, "Okay, yeah, no, I I understand. I I can't do this on my own." And I also believe that that God can help me with this, and so that's a you know that's a pretty uh, straightforward kind of look at the problem from that point of view, right? Yeah, but if you were if you were atheist or or non Christian fifty or sixty years ago, that step three could have been a a stopping point for you right there. Like you weren't getting too far into the program where you before you could have hit a pretty major roadblock potentially in your progress through the program. Right. So step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Yeah. Yeah. So that kind of, I mean, if you're an atheist, that's kind of the end of the road as far as <laughs> <laughs> it kind of is, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know how you uh, reconcile that, although there must be, there must be some work around there because there's a such thing as uh, 12 steps for atheists, right? Yes. Yeah. So that's, that's part of the program has evolved in more recent years for sure. I haven't looked into that very much. What do you know what they do about that? Is that, do they just, they kind of replace God with the group or. Well, the, or? the phrasing that I've heard, that I've read is, you know, um, turning control over to a higher power, whatever that looks like for you. But it, I think there, there has to be a, it kind of comes back to 
powerlessness that there has to be the acceptance of 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 a a universal force that is beyond the individual yeah well i guess you could you could look at it as, as as simply as i turn my life and my will over to my doctor sure you know? i mean sure. i i don't know what to do about this cancer so i'm trusting my oncologist to know best and whatever the oncologist says i'm going to do sure you know you can look at it like that i suppose and then we get into a different kind of thing. So usually the the first three steps are kind of your that's your starting point where you're you are admitting that you have an issue that you've lost control of and now you're 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 working up to believing that it's possible to get out of the problem. And that's two big that's two big things right there for a lot of Huge. people. Yeah, uh, lots of people for they can go years and years and years and think they're just fine. And sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't, you know, sometimes they could be, maybe they could be living a better life. Maybe they're 75% of their potential, but if they just cut out whatever, then they'd, you know, and that's, that's a part of autonomy. That's a part of being an adult. You know, you're allowed to decide what level of functionality you want to, uh, you want to have as you're taking yeah. on life. Right. Yeah, for sure. And then, uh, like for me, believing that there was a way out, like that didn't happen for a long time. I didn't, I thought that, uh, I thought that Oxycontin would have me forever. And, you know, I, at least as far as my career was concerned, like I certainly never believed that I could go back into a pharmacy without instantly going on a Percocet or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, that's uh, those three are kind of the first bit, and then it moves on to sort of an introspective uh, take on things, and that's made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Yeah, I like this one, uh, and I, admittedly, I'm you know because I didn't go through a twelve step program, um, haven't had to do that specifically, but when I think about the the rehab program that I did do, there was a lot of that in it. You know, the components that make Corey, Corey, um, and the, you know, finding out, picking, picking myself apart and finding out what makes me tick and, and what I have to offer and who, who I really am, which unless you've stopped, you know, stop and do it. It's, it's an interesting exercise. Um, Cause I think I had made assumptions about who I was, but when I really stopped to look and understand myself, there was so much more to it. Yeah. Know thyself. Right. Yeah. And yeah, I had a buddy tell me when I was going through this and I was complaining about all this nonstop introspective work. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, there's never any harm in knowing yourself better. Right. No. And I mean, I, Looking back on it, I would say there is harm <laughs> in that um, it can get ugly, but overall, yeah, it's, I, I think just the, the, pra the practice or the exercise of going back as far back as you can remember and really taking a look at whatever circumstances, environmental or otherwise, formed you as a person and 
and added to whatever, you know, and it might be things that pushed you in the direction of a substance use disorder, or it might be things that gave you strength or, or changed your character, provided you with resilience, whatever it may be. Excuse me. Um, I got to a point myself, and I don't know, maybe you reached this, where I had went back and looked over and written and filled up so many books that I kind of, I was like, okay, I, I don't think I can remember anymore. That's it. <laughs> you know, there's, that's all I got for you. I don't have any, maybe uh, as I move along more, you know, kind of ideas of, of where to look back in my history or, or who to talk to, to get a better perspective on what actually happened and stuff like that. Maybe there's some stones that are, are unturned that I could possibly access. But in my case, it wasn't that, uh, I mean, there might've been a, a few environmental things that contributed to my problem, but it wasn't like, I didn't have any real strong trauma events that would have been a big you know siren going off as far as this is what's causing the problem right yeah the thing for me i think that's different is is i um i had been in in counseling for uh, you know 10 years or 12 years before uh addiction started for me and there were things that i was looking at 12 years ago that I got to a certain point with, uh, I don't think I was able to fully heal and, and stayed at a, you know, this is when I'm in my early twenties still. And, and it was only when I was doing this really rapid, aggressive personal growth and, and changing during recovery that I revisited those same things. And it, it gave me a very different lens. And, uh, and I think it was also just like the place in my life where I was, really open and really willing to go there. So it, it gave me a different understanding of myself. And I think I'm to a, to a degree, I'm still doing that where I'm um, I, I have turned over the stones, but I'm still looking at them and understanding them through with a different lens of mental health, um, right. which is, which is helpful and is um, cause I find I keep, I'm still in a place right now where I'm still learning and um, yeah, but you have to be kind of in that you're, it's such a raw place to be in, in, in recovery. And um, so I think taking that inventory as they, as they call it with the support, with the support of a group, not that you have to share it all with the group, but to, to know that everyone else is going through that too. And to have some leadership with that is is a helpful thing because it's stuff that I, I don't think I could do fully on my own. I think the group, the group setting or the group mentality has been helpful to that. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree entirely. And I think that alone, you could put together a group and the group's entire purpose could be uh, one of introspection. Oh my God. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you could, just, uh, you know, kind of a, an accountability group based on, you know, looking within and discussing the, what you discover. And I mean, you could do that for quite a long time and, and for most people it would probably be beneficial, not for everybody. And, um, 
I mean, some people have, uh, it's not always a good idea to dig up the past. I mean, that should be said as well. I think for some people, uh, especially if they've, you know, they've been through some therapy as a result of some kind of traumatic event, there's a a point that's reached where I think you you can only process so much and it's best to, you know, you, you don't want to be living in the past all the time, but I think for some period of time, for most people, it's it's probably beneficial to just take a look back and get a better idea of of what's driving you. Yeah, sure. And they say they say fearless. Um, I don't know. I, a lot of people are scared to look within. I guess a lot of people have trouble doing this, or the first time they do it, it'll be a very you know, a shallow dive type of thing. Right. And they'll yeah. have to, they'll have to take many, many passes before they actually hit anything. That's where you can tell that they're actually really trying, you know? Yeah. So on to step five, admitted to God, to ourselves and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. What's your thoughts on that? I think this is a, an important one if it's done in a healthy in a healthy constructive way um i think that any of us who who have a history of of addiction uh or those who don't <laughs> there are just many of us period who who carry some degree of shame and we talked about shame in our last episode but shame surrounding our addictive behaviors shame and guilt and there's a part of it where you have to release it and, and, and carrying those things around, carrying around your guilt and shame privately is really, really self-destructive and, and puts us in a vulnerable place to, for, for relapse or for decline of our mental health and stuff. So to, to release it to someone else and to have, to have those conversations is helpful. That may just be telling a, telling a counselor or telling a, a confidant what you did. Uh, but for me, there have been there have been conversations that I've needed to have with with family about areas of shame or or things that I did that I felt like this sort of um, uh, residual sense of like a, a dirtiness and ugliness um, as I viewed myself. That having that healthy conversation has stopped me from carrying it, but I also put a lot of the how productive that was on my family's willingness to to heal with me in that and their openness to that because i think that could could go one of a couple of ways depending on on the relationships right exactly yeah that's that's a bit of a i mean you're taking a risk there so as long as you're prepared to understand that not everybody's going to be willing to do that then that's fine and being vulnerable and open to that risk i think is healthy too even going back and while you're doing this this inventory just to to admit to yourself and be honest with yourself i mean that's i think that's i mean yeah to, you know telling somebody i don't think for me it's not overly scary to tell especially if it's it's somebody in a in a meeting that i don't know very well i mean you know i, I don't think it's that difficult to 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 kind of admit our, our wrongs or, or go over all the sh- bad shit we've done. I mean, everybody's done bad shit, some worse than others, but it's, 
Uh, we're all human. We all make mistakes. But if you can be honest with yourself when you're taking that inventory and really be accountable and, and look with uh, with true honesty at, at what kind of mistakes you've made, how you've treated people, um, really think about what your actions, your know whatever these these things are that you've done in your past that you're maybe ashamed of or whatever you're considering wrong to be to really look at it and dissect it and understand it from as many angles as you can if for nothing else just as a way to prevent that behavior from from continuing on and i think that's that's part of it right yeah i when i was trying to recall as i was getting ready for this um this episode here, I was trying to recall how early and not, I don't mean the, in the healthcare groups that I attend with you, Nathan, in the caduceus groups, but in the other recovery meetings that I attend, it took me a while to even tell anybody that I was in healthcare. And that took a while longer to tell anyone that I was a nurse. And then it took a while longer to tell people that I was using drugs at work while I was a nurse. Okay. Yeah. And once I did that, um, and I didn't, I didn't want to glorify anything or, or it wasn't, you know, I was trying, wasn't trying to sort of strut that like a badge, but, but once I shared that and, and got really honest about why I was there and who I was and what I had done, so to speak, um, I, I, I could see the difference in other people. I could see that people were, I can recall a couple of direct moments where I shared that and I continue to share that in meetings when there are new people there. And I can see them open up more and maybe share a little bit more of their story or be willing to, to release whatever they have to release. And now if I'm co-hosting or facilitating a meeting um, and there are new people, that's the first thing I say is I'm a nurse uh, with a history of, of addictive behavior and, and maybe tell a little bit about my story. Um, and every time I do that, I also, it, it you know, we talked about shame last episode. It's a curative part for, for the shame of, of what I have perceived to have done. And uh, it's a big release. Yeah, absolutely. You're not only owning your, you're, you're taking accountability for what happened. You're reminding yourself that that was a reality and you're lowering everyone else's shields because they see that you're here's this guy who's just you know ruthlessly putting himself out there and uh you don't see that every day with with healthcare professionals certainly not right no we're we're kind of taught to you know there's a very different kind of set of behaviors that we use as professionals versus when we're at home right so um, totally and and this podcast in itself is totally applies to that step for me. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's an absolute, um, <laughs> I used the term in one of my meetings, a shame slayer. <laughs> Cause when, when you, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, deluded enough to think that the whole world is listening to us by any stretch, but the notion that they could, and that anyone in the whole world could listen and hear my story is, it just crushes that that shameful voice that tells me to 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 be secretive and be and isolate. Yeah. It, that voice it struggles <laughs> to exist in the presence of uh, putting your voice out to the whole world. Yeah, shame slayer. I like that. <laughs> that was actually the the uh, the B side name for the podcast. 
<laughs> right on. Um, so now that you've admitted, uh, you've went through and you've made an inventory, you've looked at all these things that you did, who you are, uh, step six, we uh, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of characters or ca- defects of character. Sorry. I don't, uh, again, I have some problem with the terminology there um, in that I, I don't, you know, the, the, what do you think about the word uh, defect or defects of character there? Oh, I mean, in in tying it to shame, I don't know. Um, to me, that word is sort of rooted in shame. Or, right. or it's it's connected to shame and and uh I, I yeah i don't i don't i don't think defect is the appropriate word for me well how does it help i mean let's put it that way sure uh you've already admitted that you have no power over the situation you're you've given up your autonomy and now you're also i mean what's the difference between that and saying you're a bad person really a, a defect of character. How do you fix a defect of character? Yeah. And, and, you know, going back to our third or fourth episode about the addictive personality and the traits of sensitivity and perfectionism and, uh, and being highly empathetic, though, those haven't always served me well, or there were, there were times where those became maladaptive or were harmful, but I, I love myself enough to say that those aren't character defects, my sensitivity. I'm glad that I'm a, a sensitive, empathetic person who, who sometimes can be burdened by the weight of the world. <laughs> yeah, this is just it. I mean, most characteristics of humans can be viewed as a double-edged sword. I mean, this is the, the this is the nature of of almost everybody you meet. I mean, yeah. short of uh, physical and mental deficits that are that are you know obviously. Uh, uh, you know, preventing you from from reaching whatever potential you you, were, you might have reached without them. Um, these are all things that can be learned about, viewed, and then basically spun around and and used to your advantage if you're if if your attitude is right and you're and you're being honest with yourself and viewing them entirely. Yeah. Um. It's interesting. What I've seen, I, I don't know if you've ever <laughs> had the pleasure of going to a, a, a real old, if you, if you get into a 12-step meeting where it's like you've got maybe two or three guys who are over the age of 70 there. And, you know, they, they just, they've been sober for 400 years. Uh, they are there basically to tell stories to whoever they can because their wife wants them out of the house, you know, <laughs> this type of, <laughs> this type of situation. Um, so it can be, it can be brutal as far as like, you know, it's just the same thing over and over and over. it's like every one of those meetings you had, that I attended, I could have just like summed it up in, in five or six sentences and moved on. But yeah. one of the things that kept coming up is, well, you know, uh, you know, once they found out about the gene, you know, I got the gene, the alcoholic gene, blah, 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 blah. And that's not, <laughs> that's not a thing. You know, it's, it's, there's <laughs> no such thing as a gene that automatically turns you into an alcoholic. Um, but that, that antiquated kind of notion or language or whatever, 
very much plays into this defect of character, yeah. right? And and yeah. how destructive is that to believe that you it's like you're you're telling yourself not only you got this this big problem that you're having a tremendous amount of issues uh, resolving, but it's it's not even really your fault at all because you've got this you've got this gene that's that's holding you back. You know, I just mm-hmm. I I don't like that level of of self victimization. I mean, yes, we know that as with everything, it's there is a, a contributing factor from genetics. You know, with some of us are more predisposed to addictive behavior than others. There's no question about that. But it's always a combination of genetic factors and environmental factors. Never is one acting alone. And I don't think there's ever a case where you could blame the entire problem on, especially not one gene. That's ridiculous. But even a set of genes, I, I just, I, I don't buy it for a second. And, uh, and, uh, I, I think it's just kind of a leftover relic from a, a different age, but yeah, yeah, for sure. So after, so we, uh, they kind of, they, they have a few steps here that are basically a process. So you're getting ready to remove these defects of character. And then step seven is humbly asking him being God, I guess, or your higher power or uh, the group or doctor or whatever you're, whoever you're dealing with to remove our shortcomings. So this is, this is interesting too, because for the people that, that find this helpful, that must mean that you, you know, how does, I, I don't know how a group of people could remove a defect, a character. I mean, is, is that how you take that Corey? Yeah, to me, it, um, the missing part of that sentence is um, <laughs> if you ask the higher power to remove that defect, there's still like a lot of work, personal work that needs to be done to do that. It doesn't just obviously go away on its own. So it, it, it um, and then the coming steps, I think, get into how, but that step itself leaves me wondering, well, it's, there's so much more than that, right? Right. And maybe, maybe the power in this step is just the willingness, mm. you know, so you're, you know, that you've, you've done some bad things, you know, that you've got some behavior patterns that are not working. They've made things unmanageable. You believe that there's a way out. And so you're willing to Maybe it's it's another way of saying I'm willing to make changes in who I am. Yeah, and and surrender. And there is a part. There's a big part of recovery, whether you're whether you are connected to a faith or not, where you where your success will be dependent on how much you surrender. And going back to like you said, your that anger that you felt when you showed up at the at the inpatient treatment center, and if you continued storming around like that. <laughs> well, the whole time you were there and then when you got out and then for years that followed um you know you you wouldn't be the person that you are today probably i would venture i don't want to put words in your mouth but like there's an element where you where you have to resign yourself to um this isn't working and what can i do and what can uh, I, and, and can i accept the help of others too 
Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I was going to add there. You, I think everybody does reach a point where I realized that I was not enough. It couldn't be just me taking on this problem. I, I needed outside help for sure. And I couldn't facilitate quality. You know, I, how am I supposed to form these connections or, or reach out to people, be vulnerable when I'm in, in a state of anger like that. Right. So totally. I allowed myself to continue to be angry at the, the, the things I was seeing at that facility, they make me angry to this day. But as far as my own personal, you know, growth or recovery is concerned, it, it just, it didn't serve me to continue being angry at it, at the whole situation. I had to, at some point say, okay, let's, uh, let's shift this energy. You know, I, I, I can't attack this problem. You know, if I'm going to use anger, that energy is a, uh, it's fuel for fixing problems. Right. And if there's no way to funnel it constructively into taking on a problem, then all you're doing is kind of, you're just exhausting yourself for nothing. Right. It's like you're, you're swinging at air. And that's what I realized that I was doing there. There wasn't, there were some things I could do to make things better down the road, but I couldn't do anything at that point. So it was best to simmer down a little bit (laughs) and, you know, not forget. I didn't forget. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you've got to, you've got to surrender to some extent. Yeah. So step eight made a list of all the persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. So this is, I mean, back in step four, when you're doing an inventory, I think if you look back there, if your inventory was thorough enough, then you would probably be able to just pull names out of that inventory and, uh, make a big list from there. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, have you ever attempted this Corey? So uh, with, with family, I, I have done that. I can think of, you know, a, uh, a, an exercise that was facilitated by the program that I was in that got us to do that. That got us to write letters to, to family or, or whoever and did that. And then, they got the family members to, to write us back. That was a really helpful exercise for, for me and my sister. Um, here's what, for me, where it's tricky is that when your addictive behavior is uh, deeply ingrained with your workplace, you are told, at least I was, and I think this is pretty common, um, while you're off work to not reach out to to, to colleagues. And while there's an investigation going on about you and about your behavior and, and whatnot, you're told not to, to make any contact with colleagues. Understandably so. Um, there, however, there were a couple of colleagues of mine who did, who reached out to me and I, I shared with, I can think of two in particular and to those two people. And those were people that I thought very highly of, uh, I was able to say, God, I'm so sorry for, putting you in the position that I put you in without you even knowing it. And, um, and the fact that you were trusting me and working alongside me, thinking that I was 
the leader and the and the you know the the coordinator of your workplace and i was impaired and god i'm i apologize so i was able to do that and that was that was a helpful thing and i and i had to kind of mentally because if i had made a list of inventory for all of the coworkers that i worked with while i was intoxicated it would have been a, a very long list and I, and it wouldn't have been productive to go to every single one of them. And it would have defied what I was allowed to do with for my workplace. Um, but to the people who reached out to me and asked me some pointed questions, I was open and apologetic and, and did make amends and it was helpful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like that approach. I don't know that it's, it's possible even to, uh, to go back to the, the beginning of time and, you know, uh, search out Susie from grade two. Uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's gotta be kind of a, a focused attempt here. And I, I think that if it's, it's the way you did it there, where it was the people who were involved kind of surrounding when the problem was generated, that, uh, that kind of sphere, um, anyone who's, you know, was harmed by your behavior during that period of time where you were, you know, at work intoxicated. That makes a lot more sense to me than, uh, than, you know, going way deep with it because like I said, it's, it's probably impossible. And I don't think it's a good, uh, you know, doing a, a, a lifelong list is probably not as, uh, it's not as efficient anyways, as far as, you know, recovery is concerned. So, yeah. And then I think you also have to consider, um, what do you want out of the relationships moving forward? Exactly. Are these, yeah. are these relationships that need to have some honesty and some healing done in order for them to, to flourish afterwards and, and, you know, to have some healing, uh, or are they relationships that, that you probably won't revisit and that are truly in your past? And, and I would yeah, I would question some some of how productive would that be. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and that's what they go on to say. So step nine, you're to make direct amends to such people whenever, wherever possible, except when to do so would would, would uh, injure them or others. And I would go further, like you said, and and really think about what your motive is for making amends in, in, in each case. Is mm -hmm. it all about you? Would it, you know, are you inconveniencing this person in a big way? Are you upsetting them? Uh, is your contact unwelcome or unwanted or unwarranted? You know, I, I don't think, I don't think it's necessarily the right thing to do to just go around and, uh, you know, look up whoever you, you, you put on your list. I think it requires a lot of consideration and, um, and thought and honesty to, to do that properly. In the, in the program that I was in the outpatient program, this was a, like I said, a facilitated exercise and we had to, to the group. And I think my program had about, it was, I think eight people. We had to read uh, our letters to our loved ones, to the group. And then a couple of days later, we had to read their letters back and of the four week program, there was no day that was heavier than the day that 
um, we had to really read the letters back. Mm. And um, for the people who were resistant or hadn't sort of cracked yet, so to speak, um, they cracked and it was a, it was a really cathartic, cathartic thing. And um, you know, there's something to, we've talked about it before to sitting in that discomfort and, and, and allowing that discomfort to come and to wash over you and to, to heal from that. Hopefully, hopefully if it's received in a way and, and it's, if the other person reciprocates it in a way that's constructive. Um, but it, it, it was for me and I, I credit my, my family for that. Um, but you know, actually mm-hmm. of, of the, everyone in the program that I was in, it was pretty constructive across the board, I think. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of relief that could possibly come with this exercise and many, I I could speak for myself here in that many times I, I feel like there were, there was a slight or, or I've done something to hurt somebody that over time, what I do is I build that up in my mind and lots, uh, very often it's when I, when I speak to the person about it, especially if a long period of time has gone by, they're, they're like, what are you talking about, man? Like they, they either they've long since forgotten about it or they remember, but it's, it's, you know, they, they didn't take it in such a, a, a negative way as I thought no. it was, or, you know, so I tend towards, uh, kind of catastrophizing those events anyway. So <laughs> the more of those that I can learn about and kind of take off the shelf or, or out of my, you know, just relieve the weights from my shoulder, the, uh, the better it is for me and the easier it is to, to move forward with life. Oh yeah. Same, same. Uh, so 10, 11 and 12 are, uh, I guess maintenance type steps. So yeah, 10 is continue to take personal inventory and when we are wrong, promptly admit it. So this is, Hopefully you've learned something about your past behavior and you're going to continue to monitor it. That's how I take that one. Yep. Uh, 11 sought through prayer and meditation to uh, improve our conscious contact with God. As we understood him praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Uh, That's an awfully uh, religious statement there, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I think he, I think it can be broken down into um, let's say making a habit of, of meditation and that alone would probably suffice. Sure. Sure. And, and, uh, um, from, and I'm, again, I'm not a 12 step guy, but for me, I would interpret that for myself as being, um, a connection with, with nature, a connection with the universe. Um, and am I, Am I feeling, am I feeling that connection to the, to the people in my lives, to music, um, to all of the things that kind of fill that, that cup for me. Um, and and which includes self-reflection too. Um, yeah, to me, to me, the benefit from this step comes from what, what, however you want to get from it. You know, if, if however people interpret it, and then use that to, um, are they are they connected with that spiritual side of their their being? 
Yeah, I like the word connectivity there. I think that's that's kind of the important one. Yeah. It's, we know when you're in a state of uh, of addiction, you're very much disconnected from absolutely everything. Yeah. Inc- including yourself, right? So um, you could call that a – you could call step 11 a kind of uh, connectivity maintenance check. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, step 12 – Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to other people with substance abuse issues and practice these principles in all our affairs. What are your thoughts on that one? Well, this is like the, um, the, the give it away, you know, the red hot chili pepper song, give it away is about this step (laughs) Um, that you, that you sort of pay it forward and that you get, the secret to that is, is that you get back from that. Right. This is kind of an underlying truth of, of life in general, right? It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. That, that, um, and I, I think probably a lot of the groups uh, that aren't necessarily even 12 step based have that where it, it does it, it being connected to a group like that and working through um, a com- working in a community um, it does for a lot of people fostered the, the desire to, to give back to that community. It fills our, it fills us up and it's um, yeah, it, there's, there's a personal part to that. Exactly. As human beings, I think it's an important part of our social co- cohesion. It's to give back to the community and to continue to work on our ability to connect with other people just on a, on a daily basis. And I think when we're willing to do that, it automatically alleviates all, uh, uh, at least some of the drive to, for one thing, isolate. And if you eliminate the drive to isolate and you're maintaining these points of connection in the community or the group or whatever, then you're, you're automatically lowering your, your probability of having a substance abuse problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah, and it, it, it's, it, it is like what, you know, you've learned all these things about yourself. Um, now, what do you do with that? And how do you, I think to, to give back is to create a, a positive loop where you're, where you're getting something and, and giving to that community. And it's, um, a, there's a restorative part to that. Yeah. Which is exactly what we're doing right here. Totally. Okay, so that's that's our look at the 12 steps. Hopefully we weren't too biased or harsh there. <laughs> Unfortunately, neither one of us have had much success with that paradigm. Uh, we're both smart recovery trained facilitators. And uh, Corey, you host your own, I think you, you host a smart meeting, don't you? I co-host a smart co-host meeting. Co-host so a smart I, meeting, uh, okay. I, uh, one night of the week, I attend three smart meetings a week, but one night of the week, I take half the group and host half the group um, and facilitate the discussion and whatever exercises I, we're going to work on. Yeah. Okay. And so I guess we could say smart is what self-management and recovery training. Yeah. Um, so in the smart model, they take a, I guess it's a, a, a four-pronged approach to um, to deal with cravings and um, 
they've got several different tools that they they have if you're if you're interested they they have a website that's fairly comprehensive where you can go and and check out their different uh, tools they have worksheets and stuff that you can use if you're if you're trying to set up a group or or just to go through and do the exercises yourself is uh can be useful for anybody really um what kind of uh what are some of the tools that that you found helpful mm-hmm. in this in this uh recovery model so the smart model is is um quite heavily psychology based evidence based um you know they use the term science based but i would i would say more heavily psychology so um lots of it is rooted in cognitive behavioral therapy and the the principle that a thought leads to a feeling which leads to a behavior so challenging that first that first part the, the thought and um so there's a huge portion of it that looks at at our own negative thinking and what um where that sort of where that has gotten us and how to challenge that so how what are our you know one of the tools is is to dispute irrational beliefs and to challenge that that story that you're telling yourself about a circumstance or about a thought or about an interaction and is your is your mind telling you a rational story about that or is it telling you something that is catastrophic or that is downing yourself in the process or that is just not true you know where you're you're thinking about the worst case scenario yeah um catastrophizing like you mentioned black and white thinking these are two things that i'm prone to as far as negative thinking is concerned I also like to fortune tell, and I believe I can read minds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All awesome stuff, superpowers. Um, unfortunately, these are <laughs> these thoughts are not correct. Um, so, what uh, what could be an example of an irrational belief? One that one that we uh, I discussed this morning was or that was discussed in a meeting that I attended this morning. Uh, was I can't I can't cope with this urge. I can't I can't get through this urge, which I think is something that a lot of people um, feel early on. Um, but even just that simple statement is that rational? Is it true that you can't cope with this urge right now? Well, when you when you say that quickly, you can kind of come to well, if I had some tools, or if I used some distraction, or if I um, reframed that thought reframed it to be, I can cope with this urge. It might be tough. It might take me going outside for a walk or picking up the phone or picking up a paintbrush, but I can. Yeah. Um, it also helps to, what I'll do often is, is do a reality check just, just from a, whatever statement I'm making in my mind. Like if in that example, I can't get through this craving as well, what's the worst thing that's going to happen if you if you just try you know like uh, if you don't you know if you don't cave to this to this desire are you going to die <laughs> right no you're not going to die okay well are you going to are you going to feel shitty well I'm, i don't know maybe i feel shitty right now are you going to feel shitty forever 
Oh, that's pretty unlikely. Right. So probably this is a temporary thing. Yeah, it's probably yeah. temporary. Okay. Well, if it's temporary, then it's then maybe you can cope with it if you just, you know, take a few deep breaths and find something constructive to do and uh, revisit it in a little while, you know, check yeah. again. Yeah. Uh, that kind of thing. Another tool that the, the tool that has been the most helpful to me and that I have to apply to my life on a almost a daily basis is the ABC tool. Okay. So this, this tool is, uh, what is the, the A is the activating event. So for me, that an example would be a, a social interaction and I'll, I'll, I'll break down an, an easy example of this in a moment, but A is the activating event. B is the belief around that event, which is other, in other words, the story that we tell ourselves. C this is, is, this is a story you're telling yourself in your head about what's going on with this social interaction. That's right. Yeah. Okay. C is the consequence. What is the what is the the effect that that belief has on my well being, on my thought process, on my on everything? Um, and then dis, and then D is disputing that belief. Going back to B, dispute that belief, and then E is effectively changing that belief and coming up with a new a new belief. So. Quick example, um, I, especially early on in, in, um, in recovery, like the first couple of months, I lived in a small town and I would bump into people that I knew quite, quite not, not infrequently. And, um, maybe they looked at me in a, in a way, or they were a little bit awkward and my brain would go a mile a minute and tell me that they knew everything about me and that they were judging me and that they were, um, they'd heard rumors about me. And, or that they didn't like me anymore, kind of a thing. So my belief around that was that I, I was a, a, a dirt bag or that I was no good or that I was, um, you know, a pariah and hated by, by my colleagues and my right. community. Yep. Consequence of that is anxiety is the release of stress hormones is more negative thinking is depression or depressed thinking, Shame. which could shame, which could lead to social, social isolation and be a really dangerous kind of path to walk down. So disputing that, um, a simple way to dispute that would, would be who says, who says that that person, um, hates me or is judging me or is, you know, what, what is the evidence of that? Well, they were awkward. Well, that doesn't mean I know what they're thinking, or that doesn't mean that I know what was happening for them today or what their, what their stressors are in the grocery store, or if they just had a fight with their spouse in the car and then they come into the grocery store to rage shop or, or whatever that may be. <laughs> <laughs> and so to effectively change that belief would be, I don't, I can't read other people's minds. I don't know what they're going through. They don't know what I'm going through actually. And there was nothing to tell me that, that I was being judged or being hated or being looked down upon. Right. And that's not to say that, I mean, sometimes your inclination or your intuition could be correct, but sure. that's, that's not really the point. The point is realizing that you can't be correct all the time. It's just yeah. it, it's, from a probability statistical point of view, it's, it's impossible. So one thing that I've learned over the last, I don't know, I guess 10 years is a big difference between me at 43 and me at uh, 30 
people don't generally give too much of a fuck about what you're up to. They, they are much too tied up in their own, in their own affairs. And that's a, that's a general statement across the board that, that can be said to be true in most of your interactions with people. You know, they'll, it's not, it's not to say that people are, are completely self absorbed or are only interested in themselves. It's just, it's not all about you. And I think that, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, we, we tend to, we, some of us, I think both of us are guilty of this inner dialogue that is magnifying all, uh, social interactions for sure. It's magnifying them, looking too deeply into them, making things out of them that, that aren't really there or, or coming to conclusions or deducing without any, without enough evidence to make those kind of uh, assumptions. Yeah. yeah. So uh, trying to reframe your thinking in this way is uh, extremely beneficial, not just from a recovery standpoint, but from a everything standpoint. And I think this is why cognitive behavioral therapy is such a useful tool just to go over the basics and, and have an idea of, of how flawed thinking and negative uh, thought patterns can influence us in our, in our day to day. That's right. For me, it's a, it can be a cascade and I have caught myself uh, in that I can be outside in my garden on a, on a, on a bad day when I'm not catching that negative thinking and I can look and say, Oh my God, I've got a lot of weeds to pull in my garden. And if I, allow that to really kind of get me down or feel stressed about that. Suddenly I'm thinking about the fact that I'm off work and how I, you know, messed up my career and how I messed up interactions. And, and it's like, hold on. It was just, I needed to pull some dandelions and now I'm, (laughs) and if I catch that train of thought, it's, it can just be rapid. It's like one negative thought can lead to another negative thought. And the mind is, especially if that those neural pathways are well-established, the mind can do that in rapid sequence. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that I have some weeds to pull in my garden has nothing to do with the fact that it has nothing to do with anything. It just means Mm -hmm. that I need to pull some weeds in my garden, like ditch that. So I wanted to, because we haven't mentioned what the four kind of the four tenants of, of the smart model are. And then there was a piece that you and I talked about earlier this week that I wanted to mention. Um, so the first one is building and maintaining motivation for in, in this, in most of the case, it's for sobriety on recovery, but you could apply building and maintaining motivation for a lot of things. Um, coping with urges and cravings is the second one. Managing thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, which is what we've just been talking about here and living a balanced life. And so those are the four things. And then, but what you and I were talking about earlier this week for myself, it kind of all comes down to managing thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. If I'm not managing my, my thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, my motivation for, for change and to maintain the lifestyle that I now lead, uh, goes out the window or is much more difficult to, to uphold. Um, my balanced life certainly gets unbalanced or the, the, the balance of the scale is, is tipped in one direction or another, where uh, if I'm, if my thoughts are negative, 
I will be less inclined to get out and, and exercise. I will be less inclined to eat in a healthy way. I'll be less inclined to have good, healthy social interactions and be connected. And then urges and cravings, that's not something that I'm, I'm currently um, struggling with, but if I'm, if I allow that negative thinking to really, really take hold of me, then I'm certainly putting myself at risk because of that disturbed feeling that 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 negative thinking creates in me and, and my um, previous tendency to need to soothe that. Yeah. Again, we're very similar in this respect. It wasn't uh, before I looked closely at cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, I continued to struggle, and I didn't even—I I had no idea really what was going on in my mind. As opposed to, you know, the, the, I mean, there's people out there who are, the, the, you know, this is not this doesn't happen to everybody. I mean probably to a small extent it does, but there's, there's a wide range of how, how negative your, your, your tendency, these, your tendency for negative thoughts, I guess you could say. Um, And my tendency is my autopilot is very negative. I, I tend to see things through a lens that um, quickly picks up the negative. I almost exclusively pick up the negative and if a positive comes along i'll discredit it or um or i won't even see it or i won't mention it so that so this thoughts behaviors uh feelings triangle is is absolutely central to it, it it's central to keeping my head above water just in life in general uh you know if i'm not paying attention to what's going on there like you said, those those pathways are so well developed that I can just I can sit here and if I'm not occupied, I can just start a like a cascade. Like you said, it'll be a catastrophizing situation where by the end of uh, I sit here for an hour and by the end of it, there's no hope. There's no reason to go on, right? Yeah. <laughs> and um, you know, regardless of of what the situation is that you're dealing with. That is not helpful, generally no. speaking. No. Um, so, like you said, the that portion of the uh, the third point of the um, smart recovery model is also a big component for me. The other one I found that I'm struggling with right now, actually, is the balance one, and I think this is a real tough struggle for so many people right now you know trying to and it's not just you know people we say work balance they always go right to work life balance um but it's not just about how much hours you're putting in at work or how many hours you're putting in versus uh how much time you're spending at home it's it's how much time you're devoting to the things that that matter to you and that's where the the hierarchy of values tool becomes important. And this is something that over the last year or two, I've made a habit of, of really, you know, every, maybe at the end of the month, at least monthly, I'll, I've got a, a document on the computer there and I'll go through and I'll look at, I have a list. So usually I have between five to 10 items. Uh, it'll be values, things that I care about, um, could be hobbies, uh, things that, that 
make my life worth living. Just making that list and then continually, sometimes uh, I'll reorder it from time to time as to what's more important, what's less important. Um, but by paying attention to those values and what is important to me, it provides uh, motivation because it, it, you know, it's the, this is what we're here for. This is the whole, the whole deal. And it allows me to, to make sure that my balance is not getting too far out of whack. Mm -hmm. This is what generates cognitive dissonance in the, in many cases is, um, you know, you're saying you don't want to do something and then doing it anyway, or saying that this is of little value to you or you like, for instance, right now I'm, I'm, uh, I'm doing some consulting work and, and helping, a somebody open up a community pharmacy. And this is something I said I wouldn't do again. It's something that I don't like. I don't believe in it. I don't like the, I think the model is antiquated. I think the, um, you know, many of the, the drugs that are prescribed are unnecessary. Uh, I, there's tons of things that I don't like about that business. And as a profession, I mean, there's aspects of it are, that are okay or whatever, but it, for me, that is not, it doesn't even show up on my list of, of values or priorities. And yet here I am, you know, I'm, I'm working my ass off here trying to, to get this store going. Plus I'm doing all these extra things and it, it hurts. Like it, uh, you know, I feel the, the dissonance from that. If it affects my sleep, I, um, I feel off kilter and, I'm aware of this. It's happening, and uh, it's a a great example of of what you'd want to avoid. <laughs> now, mm -hmm. I mean, the I knew going into this that that was going to be an issue, and I planned for it. And I, you know, it's a, a temporary situation, but still, it's somebody might not have the luxury. You know, they might not have the the ability to move their their life around so that their priorities match their 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 job or their relationship or whatever right um so for me that one is is equally important i yeah. uh, and I, I i mean Corey, your your situation is such that you're you've had what is it now 10 10 or 11 months to to basically work on kind of personal growth and recovery 16 months. Oh, 16 months. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's good. Like you've, and I, it would be so amazing if, if, um, if we could continue to make that a, a, a big priority and, and that's what I, I usually do. I tend to, I go in cycles where I'll, I'll, I'll work really hard for a little bit and then almost to the point of burnout and then I'll stop and, mm -hmm. and, uh, kind of recover and, and, recalibrate and think about what I want to do. Um, you know, if I was, if I had, a, if I had the money, I would, I would entirely, I would focus on things like this all the time. Right. But uh, I guess it depends on what your financial, um, you know, how fortunate you are in that respect. Yeah. It's, it, it would, it'll be interesting for me when I go back to work and I, I guess I'm also posing this as a question to you, Nathan, about when we're in those moments that are, that are challenging or that can create some, some cognitive dissonance, dissonance, 
that are not aligned with our value system or our hierarchy is what is our thinking in, in that moment? Like, are we, I, I would like to, one of my sort of plans is when I go back is to, is to kind of log or try to catch when that negative thinking comes in at work and what's happening at work that, that is triggering that. And am I able to catch it? And, and, and then of course the key is what do I do with that? Yeah. And I think, I mean, I've had uh, a few opportunities to work on those things. And for me, uh, again, it, I mean, it, it does go back to negative thinking because although I've just stated my, you know, my general feelings on my profession <laughs> and they don't appear to be favorable, um, that doesn't mean that I can't work on finding ways to make that experience positive. And that's what I do. I go in there, I look at it as a challenge. You know, yeah. how, how can we, you know, not just from a, it's challenging from a business point of view, but it's also, you know, how can I be more resilient to what I know is going to be a, a difficult series of interactions? You know, how can I handle this in a way that's, that's healthy from a, from a psychological point of view so that I'm, when I'm finished with those transactions at the end of the day, I don't go home uh, you know, a ball of knots and, and stressed right out. So these are things that I think it's, I look at it as an opportunity to build resilience. At the same time, it helps tremendously to look at it as something that's temporary. I mm -hmm. can't, <laughs> there's a limit to what I can do in that field, right? So if I was to say, um, I know some pharmacists sign contracts, I've never signed one in my life. And I, I think the reason for that is um, it would, I don't know how I would tolerate the feeling of being, you know, obligated to, to continue for a long period of time. It's, um, it's just, it, it's a difficult job that's, um, that, you know, there's a lot of issues with it, but it doesn't really matter. It's it, whatever your profession is, it's that, um, you know, if, if you're having to do something that, or you, you feel that you have to do uh, pharmacy, like I feel I have to go back there and, and uh, you know, th this is an opportunity to, to do a few things that are a little bit different. It's a, an interesting business situation. So I think I can look past the fact that it's not aligning with some of my values as long as it's a temporary thing. Now, I still, there's a part of me that says, no, <laughs> you're wrong. This is incorrect. Um, you should, you still shouldn't be doing this. I, I think I probably sh should not be in pharmacy at all anymore. Um, just from a, you know, from a safety standpoint, I don't think it's, it's smart being, uh, that close to, to drugs like that for me. Um, but we'll see how uh, we'll see how it goes. I mean, I've been for the last maybe five years, maybe more. I've been, you know, stuck in this kind of. Well, maybe I'll do something else. Maybe I'll, you know, and I, I do. I have lots of projects and interesting things that I do to 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 kind of keep busy elsewhere. And it's not like I'm not attempting different things, but I still haven't. I haven't gotten serious like a person who's starving is serious. If you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So I don't know at what point that'll happen, but, uh, I guess we'll find out in time. You know, the, the, the brain sort of needs reminders of 
of how temporary things are and, and of, of impermanence. Um, you know, it, it knows that we are in an uncomfortable situation or a situation that doesn't align with our values. But um, if it's not reminded that it will, that that will pass, it can kind of tell us that we're going to be in that forever, I think. And um, it, although you're, you rationally know that it's not forever, I think the it is a helpful thing um, to, to repeat that. Like I, I know some people who repeat this too shall pass as a, as a daily mantra um, yeah. life itself, of course, but also that moment of discomfort or that craving for some people or that uh, sadness or that grief or whatever it may be that it's all, that it's all temporary. Yes. Everything is temporary. Everything yeah. is transient. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny how we can we understand that, but we sort of don't. It's it's yeah. just it's something that's so easy to to tuck away. And I guess, I mean, we can't go. We wouldn't be here today if if we all we focused on was the impermanence of our existence. Right? No, <laughs> we have to uh, we have to be work hard at work trying to feed ourselves and clothe ourselves and keep a roof over our head and these types of things. Yeah, but. Um, so yeah, uh, was there anything else we wanted to bring up about the smart recovery? I think we gave kind of a, a decent overview there. Yeah, a little taste of it. And I agree with you. There's lots online. There are lots of uh, tools. There's a workbook online as well that that has lots of uh, practical information and practical um, tools that you can work through independently. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so we've got all the different... Uh, Variations of the 12-step model, and uh, we've discussed the smart recovery model. There are other kind of uh, uh, different variations of peer support groups out there. Uh, there's uh, one for women specifically, women in sobriety or sobriety for women, something like yeah. that. Yeah, women for sobriety is one. Um, you know, there's another 12-step refuge for refuge recovery um, which is a Buddhist based program. Sorry. Refuge recovery is not 12 step. That's the Buddhist based meditation oh, okay. centered program. Okay. Um, celebrate recovery is another, uh, Christian 12 step. Okay. It's okay. out there. Uh, and then there's life ring. What can you tell us anything about life ring, Nathan? You know, I don't know much about life ring. I'm afraid <laughs> I, so, uh, I'm aware of it. Uh, I, I don't know anybody who's attended a meeting. I don't know where you would get a meeting. I'm guessing, uh, they've got to have them online. Um, have you, uh, I've, I've never attended. I've, uh, just read a little bit about it. Um, you know, I was telling you before the meeting, they described themselves as, uh, bio, psycho, social, cultural, Right. Um, <laughs> the gamut, yeah, um, they are all, all but it things. is peer support base as well. A little bit more, the language is a little bit more directed at self-empowerment as well. Um, so to me, it probably fits somewhere on the spectrum of 12 step and smart life ring might be in the middle. Yeah. Maybe, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe leans a little bit more towards, um, maybe a little more 12 step. I'm not sure uh, from the reading that I've done, but there are, and I mean, we're scratching the surface. There are tons and there are new, new and smaller ones out there as well. And there are also ones that are um, 
more focused towards different professions as well and and different life experiences yeah so there seems to be uh, there's a few differences that are are kind of pronounced through them all and it's uh you know agnostic atheist versus um or religious versus secular um a self uh, the belief that we are in control of the problem at least to some extent versus the belief that we have no control over it Mm -hmm. Um, that's a variation. Um, what, oh, there was another one I was going to say. Um, yeah, I, I, I forgot which, uh, I forgot the variation I was uh, going to bring up there, but anyway, there's a, a broad spectrum of those types of, uh, of kind of, uh, belief systems i guess so you if you mm -hmm. can find one that aligns you know obviously if you're an atheist eh, 12 steps is probably not gonna not gonna be for you but uh it is i it's my belief that it's it is the it's the people and it's the form of the it's the formation of the group that's on even footing and it's a bunch of people who are in the same situation or similar situations or dealing with the same problem that's where the power lies. Absolutely. And there are meetings, not only every day, but like, you know, every hour of, of the day. Cause you can now with, with, with the virtual world that we live in, mm -hmm. the benefit is that, that it's readily available and accessible. And there, there's almost no barrier to logging into a, a meeting from anywhere in the world. I've logged into meetings that are in Texas and, and California and, and, and just to try them out and to see what they're about. And, and uh, uh, so the barriers are lower than they've ever been to trying out and attending meetings and getting connected. Yeah. Yeah. Just like everything else. I mean, there's more opportunities to learn now than, than ever before. So yeah. the tools are available and I mean, there's some thought that the virtual meetings are, are not as useful and, what I've found over, you know, since I started Obsidian, I mean, the whole thing is is done over Zoom, and we've made tremendous progress. And I don't, I don't know if there's any real difference. I suppose there's maybe, maybe if we were in a in a room together, you'd pick up on uh, a little more body language, perhaps. But I mean, the counter to that is is people are very relaxed when they're in their homes, and yeah. I find that. Uh, you know, if somebody's sitting there, they're in their, sometimes they're, they're in their pajamas or whatever, they're having a cup of tea. It's a different kind of, it, often they're, they're more willing to kind of discuss things that maybe they wouldn't be if they were in a more, you know, out at a formal, not a formal setting, but actually out with a group of people. So there's kind of, it's a give and take, but I, I haven't found, uh, I haven't found that, that the virtual meetings are lacking. I can put it that way. Same here. Same here. The quality of conversation that I've been a part of in, in virtual meetings is uh, incredible. And um, for just for myself to be able to um, get my son to bed and then be in a meeting sometimes 10 minutes later, um, just having enough time to, to make a cup of tea, say, um, it's, it's, it's great. It, it, and it removes the stress of trying to get to the meeting and of trying to make it fit in with your life. If it, if it can fit in 
that much easier and, and readily um, by doing it online, then, then so be it. Yeah. Well, look at it this way. If maybe you're a busy individual and the only way you can, you've gone, you've got an hour a week to go to an in-person meeting, but if it's virtual, you can make three meetings a week. Yeah. You know, I mean, this is, this is kind of the, I've got lots of clients down on the coast and for them to try to attend uh, the type of meetings that we do with Obsidian, uh, there were people who were commuting like an hour and a half, two hours to go to a meeting. It's absurd. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine spending that much time just to get to where, you know, just to get to a group of people. So, so yeah, I, my opinion's obviously a little biased, but uh, <laughs> that's my feelings on it anyway. Yeah. And yeah, I think that's uh, that's a, probably a pretty good overview. So that'll give you guys a a little bit of an understanding of what you're getting into, what you're what you're going to see when you when you get to a treatment facility, or whether you do an outpatient uh, treatment program. One way or the other, you're most likely going to come into contact with some sort of a peer support group. So hopefully, we've kind of provided a, an overview there that is useful to you. And um, yeah, do you have anything to add to that, Corey? No, I, I hope so too. Um, I'll just add, if you are watching us on YouTube, please feel free to uh, to comment, like, and subscribe and all that stuff. Um, you can follow us on Spotify uh, and recoverymachine.org, uh, our website where you can watch or listen and stream um, and things are updated. So each each episode will be up there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so we'll leave it there and uh, we'll see you guys in next episode. And until then, stay safe and uh, we'll see you next time. Yep. See you soon, everybody. Thanks, Anthony.